This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Lyme disease is one of the fastest-growing infectious diseases in the United States. Millions of people worldwide suffer from its often vague symptoms, including fatigue, joint and muscle pain, headaches, irregular heartbeat, and short-term memory problems. It is notoriously difficult to diagnose and treat. In addition, conventional remedies too often rely on toxic doses of antibiotics that weaken your body and worsen symptoms instead of boosting your ability to fight for your own health. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a naturopathic physician who has helped thousands of people who suffered from Lyme disease and has had his very own frustrating experience as a Lyme disease patient. And he has got a revolutionary approach to treating and healing acute and chronic Lyme. In his view, this condition is as much an autoimmune disease as it is an infection. And his unique, holistic approach provides a path to wellness by fortifying the microbiome, enhancing the immune system, and strengthening the body's ability to heal itself from within. So whether you're facing acute or chronic Lyme disease or some other autoimmune symptoms, this interview could very well help you recover your health and reclaim your life. Today's show is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union, which has been proudly serving the Armed Forces veterans and their families for over 80 years. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you too. Federally insured by NCUA. And it all starts in one minute. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Darren Ingalls, who's the author of The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease. Darren, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Armin. So describe a little bit what Lyme disease is. I think probably everybody's heard of it, certainly if you live anywhere near the outdoors or... uh, go outdoors. I mean, you've heard of it probably in more detail, but can you describe it in, in a, a little bit? Sure. Essentially, Lyme disease is a bacterial infection, and it's an infection that you typically get through a tick bite. So if you're out in the woods, out in your yard, you get a tick that jumps on you, it bites your skin, and then through that bite, it transmits this bacteria through its saliva, and then that bacteria can go through your bloodstream and start to cause you know, numerous types of symptoms, that, depending on where that bacteria happens to land in your body. So, you know, it can cause joint pain and headaches and fever and chills and swollen glands. And uh, there's really, you know, many, many different symptoms associated with it. But at the end of the day, it's really, uh, it's, a, it's a bacterial infection. You know, 
not dissimilar from, you know, getting a sinus infection or bronchitis. It's just the nature of this infection is that it tends to be a bit more systemic than other types of bacterial infections. Can you have a bacterial infection that's also an autoimmune condition, or are, are those two separate things? Because I always have heard of it as being, that's well, on the cover of the book too, an, an autoimmune thing, which is kind of like your body eating itself up. Right. And what happens with Lyme disease, you know, initially when you get exposure, you have what we call acute Lyme disease, where, you know, you feel very acutely ill. But what happens is, is the longer you've had this infection, if it doesn't get treated immediately, is you can start to develop an autoimmune condition. And there's certainly plenty of evidence in the literature that these organisms have the ability to basically trigger your immune system to start producing antibodies against various tissues, such as your joints and your brain and so forth. So it's a little bit different than the autoimmune diseases we typically think of, like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, the antibodies are a little bit different, but you know, that does tend to be a common long-term complication of having had Lyme. And, you know, part of the problem for a lot of people who end up with this issue is that, you know, they weren't diagnosed as soon as they got infected, and it could be really weeks to months to years before people figure out that they have Lyme. So, you know, certainly for people that have these ongoing chronic uh, symptoms that haven't been well explained, you know, that's something we always think of is, you know, could it be potentially Lyme disease? So a lot of people, as you said, are not noticing that they got it in the first place. The the symptoms seem like they might be something else, and they don't notice. I, I think I've heard that one of the physical symptoms, anyways, a, a rash. It's a, a like a bullseye kind of a thing. Um, but if you yeah, don't, but if you don't notice that, and you get to the point where you don't, you know, you're starting to have bizarre symptoms. And how do you even know whether it's it's worth getting checked out? Yeah, you know, the bullseye rash is the telltale symptom of Lyme disease. It, it looks exactly like it sounds. It's like a target or a bullseye. And if you see that, you know you've been bitten by a tick that carries Lyme disease. There's no other organism out there that causes that. Unfortunately, you know, the research suggests that maybe 40 to 45 percent of people who get bit by a tick that carries Lyme actually gets that rash. So the rash oh. itself doesn't, uh, unfortunately... Uh, give us necessarily a clue that there might be Lyme disease. So again, if you've got the rash, we know. If you don't have the rash, that doesn't exclude the possibility. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the symptoms of Lyme disease overlap with a lot of other conditions. You know, there's upwards of a hundred different symptoms that are associated with Lyme disease. So, you know, it, it, we call it the great imitator or the great mimic. It looks like a lot of other conditions out there, such as you know, mononucleosis. It looks like MS, it looks like Parkinson's, it looks like flu, you know. Yeah. There's just so many different things, I think, that make it very confusing for you, the patient, and us, the doctors, in trying to figure it out. But I think one of the things that tends to differentiate Lyme from these other conditions is the, the persistence of the symptoms and uh, the nature of how it presents, because it does tend to look, again, a little bit different than other conditions. But, uh, yeah, that bullseye rash, you know, unfortunately, yeah. you know, the CDC says that up to 80% of the people get the rash. But when you look at the research, again, that number is probably closer to 40%. But all of these symptoms, it, it sounds the way you're describing is you've got 100 different symptoms, and they aren't really what it, what it looks like. It could be, you know, it looks like a flu or it looks like you're having some just general foggy thinking or something or intestinal problems or whatever it is. The... 
the devastation that that can take on the body because you're going to get treated for every one of these things, right? You're going to get a whole course of medication of antibiotics for for this thing or antivirals for something else or pain medication or, you know, whatever it is. And it's not obviously going to be carrying the problem because that's not what the problem is. So this is putting your body through an awful lot of trauma, isn't it? Oh, potentially, you know, depending on what, you know, your doctor thinks the problem is, either you're getting the wrong treatment or you like to even potentially toxic treatment. You know, look, I've seen people that have been on antibiotics for months to years with really very little resolution of their symptoms. So, you know, at some point, I think, you know, we kind of have to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, the treatment we're doing isn't working. And if you've been going down a path of a specific treatment protocol and you're not improving, then it's probably wise to start looking at other possibilities of the cause. So, you know, if you've been treating it as if it's flu or treating it as if it's some other autoimmune condition and things aren't getting better, and I think it's wise that if you haven't been tested for Lyme to, you know, start down that pathway of trying to figure out if it's Lyme disease. Is there a simple test for it? Well, unfortunately, no. <laughs> you know, the the testing that's out there is, uh, we'll say, inadequate at best. You know, I find it very interesting and, you know, really having 40 years of research behind us now with Lyme that we really haven't changed uh, the testing really at all. Uh, I think there are other labs that do better testing than others. There are labs that do specialize in Lyme and what we call tick-borne illness testing. So in addition to Lyme disease, there are other microbes that can be transmitted through a tick bite. Uh, It's not just Lyme disease. So typically we'll test for the uh, totality of all those different organisms. But, you know, again, a negative test uh, through the standard testing that's done through your reference lab uh, doesn't exclude the possibility of Lyme. And, you know, if you go to the CDC's website and you read about the diagnosis of Lyme disease, even the CDC tells you it's a clinical diagnosis, which means it's really based on your symptoms. So we use the piece of paper to try and help confirm our suspicion. But at the end of the day, you know, it's really based on your symptoms. Do you happen to live in an area that's endemic for Lyme disease, like, you know, New England or the central part of the United States? Uh, but, you know, you rule out everything else. And, uh, you know, if you get lucky enough to catch a positive test, that confirms your suspicion. But, you know, we're, we're still left in this position that a negative test doesn't exclude the possibility of Lyme. So we really have to go based on your symptoms. And if we excluded other possibilities, you know, it, it, it's one of these things where, you know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Or the flu. <laughs> or or something else, yeah. Is, is there a, a Dr. Lyme or a Mr. Lyme or somebody who is the first person to identify this whole constellation of problems? Or was it a, a place well, it was named after, do you know? Yeah, well, Lyme disease was actually named after Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, it's a town in my, my home state here of Connecticut. And there was a, a cluster of children back in the late 70s that started developing room, uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis which is actually a very rare condition. And the fact that there were so many kids, and actually there were adults that were having similar symptoms as well, it it just was very unusual. So it took them several years of investigating, and doctors and uh, public health officials had come in to try and figure out what was going on. There was a suspicion that there was some sort of microbe that was triggering it, and they thought it was uh, uh, potentially some sort of form of uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. 
So they actually sent uh, samples to a doctor named Willie Bergdorfer, who was a specialist of this in Colorado. And he spent actually a couple of years uh, putting samples under a microscope and eventually identified it as being a separate organism, uh, which uh, was a form of uh, what we call Borrelia. And uh, when you're the person who uh, finds the organism, you get to name it after yourself. So his name was Willie Bergdorfer, and the organism is called Borrelia bergdorferi, so it's named after him. So he published his first paper, I think, in 1982. Uh, but it was really the early 80s when we really started to understand that, you know, Lyme, was, Lyme disease was actually a, a collection of symptoms. So mm -hmm. even though it really started with this cluster of arthritis and joint pain, as we learned more about it, we realized it was affecting more tissues than just the joints. Darren Ingalls is the author of The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Darren. I'm inspired to serve my community based on the fact that I get so much back from it. Ken Wyben, USO volunteer. This is a great country, and if people were to go ahead and step up to the plate by volunteering or doing something for their fellow man, this country will be greater than it ever was. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service on this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking about the book The Lime Solution with uh, the author Darren Ingalls. And I was just going to ask you, since you were saying that there really is not any kind of a, a reliable diagnostic test for it, is there a uh, a vaccination that you can get? Or, or well, would, the two, would the two be related in some way? I mean, if you can't, you can't have one without the other. We used to have a vaccine uh, many years ago. It was actually pulled off the market uh, partially for its ineffectiveness and partially that there were serious side effects associated with it. So there is a, a vaccine available for dogs, but there's currently not a vaccine for Lyme disease. So this is something that uh, you're not going to get a vaccine to protect yourself. So you really have to take it on your own hands to protect yourself from getting good mm -hmm. side effects. All right, so we can't take care of it, so we're going to have to do other kinds of things, and that's what really wanted to focus on for the rest of the show is tell us about the, the approach that you've got, which is, is doing things like boosting the immune system and dealing with diet, and uh, just let's take us through some of the, the steps if, if non-traditional treatment isn't working for you. Well, I think prevention is the best medicine. So I think particularly with your children and yourselves, you know, when you're outdoors, particularly, again, if you live in an area where you know Lyme is endemic, I think it's important that you take the right precautions when you're spending time out in areas where there's, you know, bushes and shrubs and trees. And certainly where I'm in Connecticut, people like to hike through the forest because it's very, you know, you know, healing and, and natural. But, you know, that means wearing long pants and socks and shoes and long sleeve shirts and a hat. You know, the tick needs to make contact with your skin to bite you. So if you can put that protective barrier between your skin and that tick, that's one of the best preventive measures that anyone can take. You can also use essential oils to help uh, stave off ticks. So there's several great organic products on the market uh, that you can get through you know, any retailer. 
that they've actually demonstrated actually will help keep ticks away. I'm not a big fan of using uh, chemicals like DEET. Uh, there are some potential uh, harmful side effects of spraying that on your child particularly, and you never, ever want to spray it directly on their skin, even if you do use it. But again, I think the evidence is that the essential oils can be as effective without the potential side effects. So, you know, if you're going to be out, you know, in the woods and uh, or in the forest, it's a good idea to try and take those protective measures. If, you know, you find a tick on you or your child, you want to remove that tick as quickly as possible. And uh, I outlined it in the book, but there is a safe way to remove that tick. And you do want to try and save that tick if at all possible, because you can send the tech into a laboratory to have it tested to find out if it carries Lyme disease or any of these co-infections. So very simply, you can get some tweezers, try and pull the tick out by its head, straight out. You know, these old things of, you know, putting a match or a needle into the tick is a bad idea because it might actually inject more of its saliva into your blood. So you want to try and remove that tick very carefully place it in a Ziploc baggie with a little wet cotton ball that helps preserve the tick. And then you can send it off to the lab to get tested. Since it takes, you know, up to a month to either show symptoms or make antibodies against the tick. If you know the tick happens to be a deer tick, which is the kind of tick that transmits Lyme, I do recommend that people get treatment right away. We know the earlier you get treatment, the better uh, potential you have of not getting Lyme disease. So in my practice, if someone knows they've been bitten by a tear tick, while we're still waiting to see if they make antibodies or if they develop symptoms, we start them on treatment right away. Now, okay, what does that look go, like? So you can go to your doctor and get a prescription for antibiotics. The CDC used to recommend a single dose of doxycycline, uh, which we now know is completely ineffective. And, of course, for children uh, under the age of eight, it's not even an appropriate antibiotic. But you could start a course of antibiotics, and we do recommend at least a 21-day course of antibiotics or longer, just to be sure. For people who don't want to do antibiotics for any number of reasons, there are actually herbal protocols that are very safe and very effective in treating acute Lyme. So that's an alternative that I talk a lot about in my book uh, instead of using antibiotics. So you know, you really can go down either path. It really is a function of what you feel most comfortable with for you or your child. But uh, again, the evidence is such that both of them can be helpful in preventing Lyme from becoming something much worse. Go back to a little bit to the, the oils that you were talking about. Is that something that you would put on in the same way that you might put on bug spray? And, and what, exactly. are, what are they specifically? So the oils that are typically used, uh, we, we recommend that you spray it, again, not directly on your skin, but once you or your child are clothed, spray it over the top of the clothes, spray it around the back of your hair, or you can spray it on a hat if you're wearing a hat. And it's generally a mix of several essential oils, so it can be a combination of cedar oil, eucalyptus oil, tea tree oil, lemongrass oil. Uh, there's actually a combination of about five or six essential oils, but I think a lot of the products kind of mix and match. But again, that combination seems to be pretty effective at keeping ticks away. So uh, again, I like to find the ones that are organic. Uh, and again, I find if you go on Amazon or check with any of your retailers that sell essential oils, you'll usually find you know a handful of these products. Okay. And what about things you talk about diet and the microbiome that we've talked about a lot here on the show, what's going on with your gut microbes, which 
there's the risk that they can be wiped out if you're using antibiotics. So if you, as you said, you may not want to go that route. What else can you do diet-wise or gut-wise? Well, treating the gut is always the first step in, I think, any kind of health issue. You know, 80% of your immune function comes from the gut. So if your gut isn't functioning well, then your immune system inherently may not function as well as you'd like to. If you already have an underlying gut issue, I think you're potentially disposed to having more chronic issues. So whether it's chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, gas bloating, all of these can be a sign that something in your gut isn't functioning well. So I recommend that you work with your healthcare provider and trying to identify what that gut issue is, what the cause is. Sometimes, again, it's just an imbalance of gut microbes. So if you've previously been on antibiotics and something's overgrown in your gut, that can cause it. Food allergies or food intolerances are also a very common cause of gut problems. Uh, Other medications can be a cause. So you kind of have to get to the root of what might be underlying that. But that really is that first step in making sure that people are digesting and eliminating well. And beyond that, when we look at diet, I recommend following what's called an alkaline diet. And what that really means is that you're eating foods that make your cells more alkaline. With the exception of your stomach, your bladder, and for women, the vaginal area that's very acidic, that's to help protect against outside invaders. The rest of your body actually functions in a more alkaline state. So when you're looking at the type of food you're eating, it's really not about the pH of the food. It's about what that food breaks down to once you ingest it. And very simply, without going into tremendous detail, it's basically a mostly vegetarian diet where we try and limit animal protein. So that's you know meat, fish, eggs, to less than 20% of your total dietary intake. And then we really try to eliminate any junk foods, processed foods, dairy products, and and things like, you know, coffee and jam and things that are very sweet, uh, just because those foods tend to be very acid-forming in the body. And the reason that becomes important is that acid in the body ultimately leads to inflammation. So this is really a way of controlling inflammation and keeping your immune system healthy. Now, have we been talking about what you're doing to prevent or to treat? Well, in I, terms wasn't, of, I wasn't clear where you were going with some of this. It sounded as though you were going a little bit back and forth. Well, I think in terms of diet, you know, it, there are people who get exposed to the ticks that carry Lyme disease and never get Lyme disease. There are other people who get bit and do get Lyme disease. You know, what's the difference between the two? I think part of that difference is the state of your body going into that tick bite. So I think for people who are have good, healthy immune systems, who are eating well and really taking care of themselves, the likelihood of developing a chronic problem for Lyme certainly is much less. So I do see this as a preventive strategy. However, for someone who already has been infected, this is also part of the treatment because, again, we're trying to shift the body away from that inflammatory process and improve immune function. So it really does serve as both a preventive and a treatment uh, perspective. Last thing, we only have just a couple seconds, but is is it contagious or do you actually have to get the bite? Well, what the research shows is that you get it from the bite. The ability to transmit it from person to person, uh, it's controversial. You know, whether it's sexually transmitted, it has not been well demonstrated in the literature. Can it be passed from mom through breast milk? Again, hasn't been shown. Uh So as far as we can tell, 
It's probably not easy to transmit it from person to person, but mm. I also don't think it's impossible either, but there are probably certain circumstances that would have to be set. But by and large, you know, the majority of people who get Lyme do get it through a tick bite. Yeah, but the fact that it's not an unequivocal no is, is troubling. Uh, yeah, exactly. Darren Ingalls is the author of The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease. Darren, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, Armin. My son Casey was a bright, fearless 20-year-old with a boundless future ahead of him. But in the blink of an eye, he was gone. While out riding a skateboard, Casey fell. He was not wearing a helmet. Our whole family wishes he was. It could have saved his life. I'm Captain Kevin Raffelli of the San Mateo Police Department. Parents, encourage your kids to strap on a helmet every time they jump on a bike, scooter, or skateboard. Think of my son Casey and use your head. Put a helmet on. It could save your life. A message from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I remember being a child and constantly being amazed but it seems like life is moving much more quickly these days, and my own kids never get the luxury of just staring at the stars. Is there some way that today's overscheduled families can slow down and rekindle that sense of wonder? Well, childhood is filled with all sorts of developmental windows. It's when we learn how to speak and read, and we learn values, discover talents and passions, and much more. But those windows don't stay open forever. Childhood is also a time when our attitudes and beliefs about the world around us are formed. How you spend your first few years goes a long way toward determining whether you're a nose-to-the-grindstone type of person or a head-in-the-clouds one. Developing that sense of wonder you remember so fondly requires three things, time, opportunity, and practice. Here are some ways to jumpstart that process. Schedule is good, but overscheduled is not. If you want your kids to experience wonder during their childhood, they must have unstructured time. Ironically, sometimes the only way to ensure that they get enough of that is to, well, schedule it. Power down. Time in front of a TV, phone, or other screen is time spent seeing the world through someone else's eyes. Help your kids find hobbies and interests that will engage their own creativity and reflection. Choose wonder-inducing family activities. Not every outing has to be an opportunity to ponder the meaning of life, but be sure to work in the occasional trip to the zoo, the aquarium, the science museum, the planetarium, or even a simple walk in the woods. Places like those encourage kids to see the world in different ways. Fewer toys equals more imagination. Gadgets and toys, which include playground equipment, are great, but they're also very limiting. A toy car is just a toy car, but with a little bit of imagination, the box that car came in could be an airplane, a whale, a rocket ship, or anything else. Point out the wonder in the everyday. You don't have to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon or stare at a nebula through a telescope to experience wonder. Everyday things get more wonderfully strange the more you look and learn. Watch a hummingbird at a feeder. Stay up late for a meteor shower. Raise a Venus flytrap. And think about these. Here are a few concepts that are always making me wonder how and why and what is going on in the world. If you take the history of the universe from the Big Bang to today and shrink it down to a single year, 
humans would appear on December 31st at about 10.30 p.m. Every atom in your body has been around since the beginning of time and has passed through several stars, not to mention countless people, plants, and animals, before becoming part of you. Our planet is zipping along at about 900 miles an hour right beneath our feet. Through the wonder of DNA, you are literally half your mom and half your dad, and a complete blueprint to build you exists in each and every cell of your body. The faster you go, the slower time moves. All life on Earth is related. You're a cousin, although a pretty distant one, of the sequoia, the amoeba, mosses, blue whales, and butterflies. Once kids get a taste of the wonder that's all around them, you won't have to prompt them a bit. They'll lead the way. But it's up to you to get the ball rolling by giving them those three things that they need. Time, opportunity, and practice. We'll be back next week with another show for you. Hey, but you know what? Don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this from the MrDad.com radio network. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. The champ's not wasting any time. It's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to ahrq.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? ahrq.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Most parents know that they should create a will or a trust in case they die unexpectedly. But they often avoid doing this critical task. For many, what stops them is not knowing whom to name as a guardian for their children. According to a lot of attorneys, this type of procrastination is totally normal and understandable. After all, it's really hard for parents to imagine anyone else doing a better job raising our kids than we could. And, of course, no one wants to think about dying an untimely death. Still, most attorneys insist that naming a guardian is something that every parent must prioritize in order to protect our kids. My guest for this part of today's show, who's an estate planner who's worked with hundreds of families over the last 17 years, knows quite a few things about the topic of naming guardians and a lot of other stuff. She says, if a parent doesn't nominate a guardian and one is needed, someone else is going to make that choice, a judge. And that judge is going to be a complete stranger who doesn't know you, your values, your family, and your kids. Worse, that judge won't know that you don't like your brother's wife or that your mother-in-law lives in an all-white house. 
So grab yourself some paper and something to write with and get ready to learn everything there is to know about naming guardians, estate planning, wills, trust, and a lot more. And it all starts right after this. Did you know when you donate a kidney, you give the gift of life? I had no idea you could donate an organ while you were still alive. If I'm born with two healthy kidneys but only need one, and I could really improve somebody else's life, why not? When I think of giving up something I don't need in exchange for a life, it's no contest. If I had another one, I'd do it again. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Liza Hanks, who's the author of Every Californian's Guide to Estate Planning, Wills, Trusts, and Everything Else. Liza, thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm super happy to be on your show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the the central premise of the thing is that that parents don't do the, the responsible thing the way that we should as far as getting wills and trusts all ready to go. Uh, because we're going to get hung up on the whole issue of guardianship. Should that be well, the, the major concern, or can can we put that off and, and start gathering documents before? Well, you know, I think any parent of a young kid really, really, really needs to put a will in place because parents are the best people and really the only people who should be making that decision, right, who should take care of their kids if they're not around to raise those kids till they're 18, and, you know, I started writing books about estate planning when my son was just, I don't know, a year old maybe, because I felt like so many parents get stuck right there and then they don't do anything at all. And, you know, they let the perfect be the enemy of the good enough and they shouldn't, right? It's a big, it's a beautiful thing to do for your kids. And in so many cases, you know, it never comes to pass, but we still want to think it through. Are there certain yeah. kinds of situations where it's not necessary? I mean, if you have divorced parents, for example, if you, and is, is the assumption going to be that the child would go to the other parent? Right. So, yeah, if you're divorced, <clears throat> the other parent isn't the guardian. The other parent is just the surviving parent. Um, but even divorced people really ought to have a will in place because, you know, who knows what could happen? And if their ex dies before they do, then... The last person standing gets to pick the guardians for the kids. So that's that's one situation where, you know, it, it makes sense for both parents to put together a will. And if they're on amicable terms, you know, they can name the same guardians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't think of any situation in which uh, a parent of a child under 18 shouldn't leave in writing somehow who they would like to have uh, raise those kids if they can't. And the thing that I write about in the book and the thing that I talk about with new parents, you know, all the time is that. What, what's the consequence of not making that choice? It's not that the choice doesn't get made if it needs to get made. What happens is a judge makes that choice, and that judge doesn't know you, doesn't know your kids, doesn't know your brother-in-law, doesn't know that your mother has a house that's entirely carpeted with white carpet, right? All the things that you know, that's why we want you to make that choice. It's one of those grown-up decisions that doesn't go away if you don't make it. It's just you give control of that decision to somebody else. And, and I don't it, think any parent wants to do that. And it's dealing with kids only up to 18, so you don't have to take care, you don't have to worry about this if you've got kids older than that. 
So at least that particular so for, part of it. From the perspective of guardianship, that ends at 18 because children become legal adults at that point. There's a whole other part of estate planning for, for children, right, that goes much past 18, which is putting something in place to manage their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most people wouldn't think that an 18-year-old is, is uh, mature enough to handle an inheritance. No. So, no. no. So another part of planning, uh, aside from guardianship, is putting together at least a simple way to manage a child's money at least until the age of 25. And I do write about that in the book, but mm-hmm. we don't have to talk about that today. No, we, we will talk about that. I definitely want to talk about that. I just, I just was trying to, to lay out some, some ground rules. Um, can you also talk, before we, we get into some more of the, the specifics and details, just generally speaking, the difference between a will and a trust and why one would be more applicable or better for for one situations and, and other situations that it's not as good for. Right. Well, here's how I describe it in the book. A will and a trust are really two different roads to the same destination, right? At the end of the day, either document, either kind of an estate plan can put all the pieces in place that you need as a parent of young kids. They can put together management of money for children and custodial responsibility for those kids till they're 18. The difference is how you get to that place. So if you have a will and you have a property worth over a certain amount of money, and that differs from state to state, in California where I practice, that number is $150,000. So if you have a will and assets worth more than $150,000 and you die, then you have to go through probate before your estate plan is put into place. And so, uh, but a trust is a way of passing property to your heirs and beneficiaries without going through probate. But both documents can um, put together management of property for children until they grow up. And if you do a trust, you still always do a will because the will is the only document where you can nominate guardians for your kids. So it depends a little bit on where you live. So certain states have reformed their probate process, so it's um, relatively inexpensive and easy to get through. And in states like that, people don't do living trusts. In states like California, where I practice, California is not one of the states that that has made probate either inexpensive or fast. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, and so in in California, um, many, many, many people use living trusts as their primary estate planning document. But like in Washington state, people use wills. So it depends where you live. So it so there really isn't a slam dunk about one being better than the other, and it sounds like you have to have both in some cases anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean the way I describe it to, to young parents in particular is you definitely need a will, no matter what. And then the question is, do you also want to do a living trust to make the transfer of your property more efficient and less expensive for your kids? Okay. So So the will is the bottom line, and the trust is kind of the frosting on the cake. In at least where I practice, right? It's not true in every state. Right. Right. Okay. So, as far as assets, I mean, assets seems seems like a, a word that should be easily enough defined. But I think you know, people think of okay, a house and stuff that's in it. it, it what about things like IRAs and and ac- okay. accounts like that? There are brokerage accounts that have beneficiaries already set up. Do those have? Do those go through probate, or are they already exempted from that somehow because you've already appointed a beneficiary? Right. Well, so at the risk of being like 
self-promoting, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, <laughs> because there's a lot of confusion about that, and not everybody can afford an expensive attorney. And so I want to get that information out to people, right? Because we all have these kinds of assets. So to answer your question directly, any retirement plan or life insurance policy that has a beneficiary designation associated with it, that passes directly to those beneficiaries outside of either a will or a trust, because that's a contract between you and the company that's holding your money. And you tell them when you open the account, these are my beneficiaries, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's one, I call that like a train track. That's one way assets get to your beneficiaries or your heirs. But you have other assets that don't have beneficiaries associated with them, like your house, like your bank account, like the stuff in your house, like savings bonds, right? Like all, pretty much everything else doesn't have a beneficiary designation. And that's what passes by will or trust. Does that make sense? Okay. No, that makes that makes good sense. Yeah. So I mean, for for those who are quickly calculating how you know the value yeah, of their house and or whether the value of their IRAs put them over the hundred and fifty thousand dollar right well, number well, that you I, were saying. Right. I simplified that a little when I was um, answering that question at first because the the better answer is it's one hundred and fifty in California. In California, right? right, right different right. state to state, but in all states have what's called a small estates affidavit or a small estates number associated with, and anything below that number doesn't go through probate. And in, and in all states, they're not going to count anything with a beneficiary designation because we know who gets that money, right? There's already a legal contract between, you know, Fidelity and you that upon your death, certain people are going to get those dollars. But, but probate was invented, um, you know, in merry old England when the Lord died and everyone stole the castle. There was nobody looking out for the dead guy. And they thought, you know, maybe we should invent something that's a little bit more protective <laughs> of a dead person's wishes, right? So probate attaches only to things that don't have a built-in beneficiary. And the idea behind probate, probate's not bad. I mean, probate is a process where a judge uh, makes sure that a will is valid, that the right people have been notified, that the taxes have been paid. And, and at the end of that process, issues an order that says, you get this, you get that, you get that. So it serves a really good purpose of avoiding, you know, fraud and theft after someone dies. But the reason people like trust, at least in states like mine, is that from the vast majority of families don't need public oversight. They know who gets the money, right? It's their kids. And nobody's fighting, so there's no benefit to going to court. It's just an additional delay and cost, right? Yep. Talking with Liza Hanks, who's the author of Every Californian's Guide to Estate Planning, Wills, Trusts, and Everything Else. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to keep talking to Liza about some some of the more specifics about the everything else in particular and a little bit more about wills and trusts, but also taxes and, and other unpleasant thoughts. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Liza Hanks, who's the author of Every Californian's Guide to Estate Planning, Wills, Trusts, and Everything Else. It's a no-low press book. And let's let's talk about taxes, because I think there, there's another thing, and you know, anybody who's followed the, the tax overhaul 
thing that just passed fairly recently, and I'm sure most people who did were completely confused by it, but a little piece of it anyway, or in certainly any kind of discussions that we have about wills and trusts, there's taxes involved and then the limits for, for estates that pass without taxes and what taxes are being, or what, what are what's being charged on, what's the base amount that's being charged on. So can you talk a little bit about that? And and yeah. I, I understand that it's going to be a little different in California than everywhere else, but not really. Generally, I mean, generally, you know, because these are federal taxes, so they apply, you know, across the country. And um, uncharacteristically, for an attorney, I have like good news for the vast majority of the listeners to the show that they don't have <laughs> to pay the estate tax because currently you have to have almost eleven point two million dollars to be subject to the estate tax. And I'm I can be. I'm quite sure that 99.999% of your listeners are not going to be subject to that tax because that's true across America. You know, at this point, the estate tax is levied only on the very wealthy. And around where I live in the Bay Area of California, people who have vastly appreciated homes, right? They may not feel wealthy, but we are getting into nosebleed territory with the estate tax. It used to be something like a million dollars back in 2001. So over the last 16 years, 17 years, the whole time I've been an estate planner, all we see is fewer and fewer and fewer people having to pay that tax. And that's bad news for the Treasury, great news for the taxpayer. Um, but, but the thing that's important for people to know is the same 99.9% of your listeners who don't have to pay the estate tax, they still have to do an estate plan because, you know, unless the federal government can make us all immortal, you know, it's still really relevant to the rest of us, because most of an estate plan has nothing to do with the estate tax. It has everything to do with naming guardians for kids, giving your property to the people and organizations that you care about, putting a plan in place to manage money for children until they're of a certain age, and if you're in a blended family, taking care of your spouse and your kids from your first marriage, and none of that has to do with the estate tax. I hope that answers your question. It, it does, yeah. And, so, and let's, yeah. let's talk a little bit about bl- the blended family situation, since that is such a common thing in in so many right. different households. Do individuals do wills, or do you do a joint will? So individuals do wills, and it depends on what kind of state you live in as to whether you do a joint trust or individual trust. So in California and several of the Western states that are community property states, uh, at least for sure in California, I'm not licensed to practice in any other state, but generally in in community property states, people will do a joint trust to hold their community property. But in other states, like on the East Coast mostly, that are separate property states, a husband will do a trust and a wife will do a trust, or you know, one partner will do their own trust and the other partner will do their own trust. Mm-hmm. Um, But in either architecture, if you're in a blended family, and by that I mean you came to the marriage with children generally from a a former relationship or marriage, so you're blending two families. Right. Um, And maybe you have mutual kids in the current marriage. That happens too, right? So you have older kids from previous relationships and then littler kids from a current relationship. Um, In any of those situations, you know, an estate plan has to balance usually uh, the need of, of a partner to take care of their spouse or partner at the first death, uh, and then how to take care of their children from previous marriages. And there isn't one size fit all answer. I mean, it's different for different families, um, but it's certainly a rich territory to explore. And it's definitely one you want to plan for because there can be conflict, you know, after the death of a parent between stepkids 
and a second husband and wife. And you oh, know, yeah. we try to we try to work our way through it by by good planning, you know, by being clear about what the priorities are and who gets taken care of first. And um, but it's it's a difficult thing, but right. a fruitful thing, right? So it, again, it's a little bit like guardianship. It's not like it goes away if you don't talk about it. Right. right. It's just it's got to be important to lay all those things out, but they're very unpleasant to have the conversations in the first place and to think about it. And so, yeah. you know, always unpleasant i think i don't i don't find it unpleasant i don't think a lot of my clients or readers will find it unpleasant to have a an honest conversation about what their goals are and values are and priorities are if they die first i think it's a good it can often be a really positive conversation and i see plenty of blended families that really come together after there's been a death and take care of each other you know it doesn't always dissolve into soap opera conflict although you know it can but that's not actually been my experience as a planner over the last 18 years. It's like generally people work together pretty well, especially if they've had the conversations beforehand. Right. Yeah. Where I, where, where I find conflict is when people are unpleasantly surprised, you know, when a parent dies, that's where the problems come up. Yeah. So how do you, you begin to have that conversation or facilitate that conversation? Cause I, I think it, it, it's still, I mean, you're, you're saying that you're not having a lot of problems with it, which is a great thing, but, you know, having been in, a, in blended families before, uh, I, I could see that there, there's, there's just sticky issues about, you know, what do we right. do about the, my kids from before? I mean, how much of my assets go there as opposed to our joint kids or your kids, or does, right. does my IRA money that I've had in the bank for, for 30 years before I met you, uh, you know, does that go anywhere? Of course, we already talked about how that would would have separate beneficiaries, but still, there could be the house, you know, that I that I bought before before I met you, kind of thing. Um, right. So, so when you were asking me how to have the conversation, I think you were asking me as if I were in that family, not as the estate planning attorney, right? Like how I would recommend your readers talk, your listeners talk to each other. Uh, yeah. Well, I was asking you as somebody who probably facilitates those conversations for clients. How do you yeah, get I do the, all the time. Yeah, how do you get them to get, you know, give, give them the, the right building blocks for the conversation? Well, you know, I would encourage people to, um, to think about what, what, what do they want to have happen when the first of them dies? You know, start with that. And that conversation can be, you know, it might be that one partner says, you know, I want to make sure that my adult kids from my first marriage benefit at my death. Um, and my spouse, you know, I don't want them to have to, you know, if your spouse is 20 years younger than you are, he or she may not be that much older than your adult kids from your first marriage, right? So I try to get people to think about what, what happens when you die first, you know, do you want all the money to go in trust for the benefit of your spouse? Do you want to make gifts right then to your grown up kids? Do you want to take out a separate life insurance policy to benefit those kids so that you know for sure when you die, they will get something? And then we just take it from there, you know, and it's a question of, and sometimes, you know, it can get uncomfortable, but often that will be a family that didn't do a prenup or a postnup agreement when they first came together in that second marriage. So maybe they've never talked about money, right? Yeah. Maybe they've never had that conversation. So um, that's a really rich territory. And sometimes people have to take a break from their estate planning and kind of work out who owns what first and, and document their understanding about what's community property and what's separate. Now, again, I practice in a community property state. In other states, if your name is on the account, it's your property. It's not that complicated. 
right? So it does vary state to state, but I don't think it varies relationship to relationship. I think in any relationship that's, a, that's at all complicated, uh, the couple needs to have an understanding between themselves uh, about the character of the property and how they share it first, right? Yeah. Now, is this stuff that we've been talking about, the wills and the trusts and, and the rest of it, is this something that people can do on their own? Because I think that's another, just aside from the, the complication factor or the I don't want to deal with it factor, there's the, oh, my God, it's going to be expensive. I'm going to have to hire a team of lawyers, and uh, I'll, I'll put it off and pretend it'll go away. Right. So good luck with that. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess uh, for an estate planner, I'm a little bit unusual because I've written, <clears throat> you know, three books for NOLO, and I'm a big believer in people doing things themselves. Uh, if they want to and they can. So there are good resources out there for people, for sure, who want to educate themselves. And I hope that my books um, can facilitate that. Um, if you want to put together a simple will, uh, along with powers of attorney, advanced directives, which we actually haven't talked about yet, but in the everything else bucket, I would put documents where you appoint agents to act for you if you're incapacitated is an important part of a plan. Because even if you're a parent of a young kid, you could fall off a ladder, you can get hit by a car, you can get hurt or get sick. And so we all need to think about that part too. And, you know, there are good self-help resources out there to do those things. I think NOLO is a great company. That's why I write for them, you know, so full mm -hmm. disclosure, but all of their editors are lawyers and all of their products accomplish the basic tasks really effectively for people. That being said, um, I think that there is a territory that lawyers do have value, you know? I mean, I don't do my own taxes. I don't fix the brakes in my car, right? right. There are things, right. yeah, I mean, I'm not a general contractor. There are things that I rely on other people's expertise to make an experience better for me. And I think estate planning can be that for a lot of people, but I think at the basic level, you can do a lot on your own. You can absolutely name guardians for your kids and do a simple will when you have a baby without an attorney. So I'm not... I'm not saying attorneys have no value. I certainly hope that most attorneys provide value to families, um, but you don't necessarily need a team of lawyers and accountants or to spend $10,000 to put something in place. Okay. And I think, and, and I think that the basic documents uh, are a huge improvement over doing nothing at all. Okay. Right. All right. Liza Hanks is the author of Every California's Guide to Estate Planning, Wills, Trusts, and Everything Else. Thank you. Great. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. And before we go, a special shout-out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.